Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, we thank our distinguished witness for being here today. We'll introduce you more formally in just a moment, but uh, we thank you and appreciate the conversation we had in the back uh, about the potential Russian involvement in your own country recently uh, um, and the comments made by your Prime Minister. We are delighted to have with us today David Cameron, who served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2010 to 2016 and leader of the Conservative Party from 2005 to 2016. Mr. Cameron has devoted himself in the past year to chairing the Commission on State Fragility, Growth and Development. Successful states depend upon social contracts between citizens and their government when the fundamental legitimacy is lacking, traditional approaches to foreign assistance and capacity building are not adequate. Each fragile state is vulnerable in its own way. They cannot be understood, let alone strengthened, if viewed from only a development or political or security perspective. Billions of dollars, pounds, and euros have been spent over the years in many countries only to see them revert to conflict, instability, and repression. One of the core questions I hope to explore with this hearing is one that taxpayers here and in the UK are justified in asking. Why should we continue to concern ourselves with fragile states, and what challenges do they pose to our national interest? Few conflicts stay within national borders these days. The number of refugees displaced and displaced persons around the world have never been greater. International criminal organizations, human traffickers, drug lords, terrorists, and arms dealers thrive on the safe havens afforded by corrupt and chaotic regimes. These destabilizing forces reverberate both regionally and globally with real consequences for the U.S. economy and national security. Our institutions must work smarter and they must work together with the right selection of tools at our disposal. In my experience, effort like Mr. Cameron's are the most effective when they can assemble the best minds and the best research to examine problems with fresh thinking and challenge conventional solutions. With that in mind, I look forward to hearing what our distinguished witness has learned and how we can best collaborate with our friends in the UK and elsewhere to defend our common interest to prevent fragile states from becoming failed states. With that, I'd like to ask our distinguished ranking member, Bob Menendez, uh, for any opening comments he may have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I also want to welcome the Prime Minister uh, for having the opportunity of his insights and his work since he left as a Prime Minister and doing very important work on fragile states. But before we get to that, I, I would be remiss not to acknowledge uh, the President's uh, unceremonious dismissal of his top diplomat this morning via Twitter. Uh, this hearing focuses on fragile states and the importance of strong governing institutions that respect the rule of law. And maybe we need to take a look inwards. The foreign policy of the current administration has been marked by chaos, by undermining the very idea of diplomacy, by turning away from those values that have made the United States a vibrant, prosperous democracy driven by the rule of law. We need stable, skilled, seasoned leadership to address the enormous challenges fragile states pose. Regrettably, that's not the kind of leadership I have seen. In fact, we have the opposite, which is placing a severe strain on the international order and accelerates the destabilization of fragile states and regions. While I certainly had my differences with Secretary Tillerson, uh, I cannot see the hollowing out of our State Department uh, and remain silent. I look forward to an opportunity to have a full vetting 
before the committee, Mr. Chairman, of the designee uh, of uh, the President to be the new Secretary of State uh, because there is a vast difference between being the CIA Director and being the Secretary of State, and I look forward to that opportunity. But briefly, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, it's an honor to have you before the committee uh, on your perspectives on fragile states and how we develop strategic policies to address fragile states and the failure of states to govern effectively. Uh, broadly speaking, we define states as fragile when their growing institutions are weak, well, I should say their governing institutions are weak. They do not effectively or equally re represent, protect, or advocate for all their people and experience high poverty and income inequality. They are less capable of responding effectively to conflict and shocks from natural disaster, and their citizens are often more susceptible to radicalization. Examining instability around the world indicates fragile states are increasingly responsible for the conflict and misery we see in many parts of the globe. So it seems to me that the United States has a vested interest in its own national interest and in security uh, in making investments in how we help build uh, the, those states from fragile states to strong states with democratic institutions uh, and well-defined uh, governance and, and rule of law. Uh, I will just simply uh, say that when Americans wonder whether or not uh, it is in our national interest to be engaged in fragile states across the globe, uh, I am reminded of uh, the consequences of the interconnectedness that we have uh, in the world uh, and that what happens someplace else in the world can very often affect us here at home uh, and in our interests abroad. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I ask that the full statement I have be included in the record. Without objection, thank you. David Cameron served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2010 to 2016. During this time, Mr. Cameron addressed significant foreign policy challenges such as the Arab uprisings, an increasingly aggressive Russia, and the global fight against ISIS. He increased UK aid spending and allocated 50% of it to fragile states and regions. He also co-chaired the UN high-level panel that launched the Sustainable Development Goals. We want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, it is certainly a uh, treat for us to have you here. Um, and we look forward to your report and the questions that come after. With that, uh, please begin. And again, thank you. Any written materials you have that you'd like to have entered into the record, we'll do so. Got it. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the welcome. And thank you for this opportunity to talk about uh, what I think is an incredibly important issue. Um, thank you, Mr. Menendez, for what you said. I suspect today is going to be one day where I won't be asked so much about Brexit, perhaps instead Rexit will be the uh, topic that uh, people might want to challenge me on. But it's very good to be, be with you. As you say, I've been chairing a commission on fragile states for over the last year. I've been co-chairing it with Donald Kabaruka, the former finance minister of Rwanda. Uh, we've had a very big ap academic input um, from Oxford University, London School of Economics, Princeton, um, Stanford, and uh, some other leading US universities. And also, we've had input from practitioners, policymakers, civil servants from countries as diverse as Yemen and Pakistan. Um, you, you asked me to address briefly three things, the nature of the problem, the current solutions, and whether they're working or not, and any other points I want to make. Let me just try and do those three things. I mean, the problem, Mr. Chairman, you put very succinctly, there's a set of countries uh, that have weak governments, appalling levels of corruption, 
high levels of conflict, very severe poverty, uh, that in many ways are either failed or failing states. Um, there are a number in Africa, but the problems aren't restricted to Africa. We can see countries as far afield as Haiti or Venezuela that are affected by severe um, fragility. Uh, I think one of the reasons for having this commission uh, is that the problem is getting worse. The number of fragile states is actually increasing. One or two are exiting what you'd call fragility, but on the whole, the problem is getting um, worse. And I think there are two very big issues there which go directly to um, your introductory remarks. One is, in these countries, we're, we're very unlikely to meet any of the sustainable development goals. Um, some of them are poorer than they were 40 years ago. And so in terms of the things we want to see, in terms of reducing poverty and better access uh, to everything from uh, medicine to, to clean water, in some cases going backwards. But secondly, and this goes, I think, directly to your point, Mr. Chairman, these fragile states also affect us in the developed world. Uh, if we let countries fail, uh, we see uh, whether it is health pandemics, mass movement of people, uh, failed states and, and fragile states can often be places where terrorism and terror training camps can, can take hold. Um, and so this is something that affects us directly uh, back at home. So I think the nature of the problem is quite well understood. Our committee, our commission is, is trying to really understand uh, all of the elements of being a, a fragile state. In terms of the current approaches, um, I, I, look, there's a lot of good work being done, and I am a supporter of overseas aid. Uh, under my prime ministership, we achieved something that no other G7 country has achieved so far, which is getting to the 0.7% of our gross national income spent on aid. That was a promise we all made effectively at Glen Eagles. Uh, we have met it, and I, I think it's a lot of good work is done in terms of vaccinations and supporting education programs and lifting people out of poverty. But I think we have to be frank, when it comes to these fragile states, the aid may have helped in particular areas, but these countries in many ways haven't got better. And I would say there are three things wrong, really, with the current um, approaches. One is they're unrealistic. We tend to give these countries endless lists of priorities um, about things they should achieve, and that sets them up for failure. In some ways, we have an unrealistic starting point. We almost ask the question internationally, you know, what's the opposite of a fragile state? Well, it's a country that uh, meets all the norms of an uh, OECD country, say Denmark. Well, let's try and make everyone like Denmark. This is hopelessly unrealistic. And so we set ourselves up for failure. I think the second uh, issue we've been looking at um, is a, a poor focus as well. I think in many of these countries, there just simply isn't the basic governmental capacity. There isn't basic levels of security. Um, and there's been an insufficient uh, focus on the things that matter most to people, which is being safe in your bed and being able to put food on the table. So security and jobs. Uh, and I think uh, that has been lacking. But I think the third thing we've been looking at very carefully, and a lot of evidence has come through, and this is uh, perhaps the most depressing thing, is quite a lot of what the international community has been doing has been counterproductive. And in this way, that there's huge good intentions of working with fragile states and working on all the things they need to get right. But in many ways, we often go around the governments of these countries um, and try to help them without actually assisting the authorities of that country. And why that is counterproductive is in the end of the day, um, these countries will only succeed if their governments become more legitimate and accepted, if their governments become more capable. And in many cases, I think we've actually undermined 
um, that capability and that legitimacy. So I think that is where the current approaches are failing. I think the changes, the sorts of things we're looking at, but we're still drafting our report and we're very interested in the input of, of uh, other countries, perhaps particularly the United States with the, with the huge influence and budget that you have. The sorts of things we're looking at is trying to work more on the national priorities that fragile states have, backing their program rather than trying to impose our own. I think a more hard-headed approach about the importance of security. Um, I think actually uh, this, this issue of conditionality we're looking at. Of course, our taxpayers, our publics, do not want to see money endlessly spent that is wasted. And that has led in many ways to conditionality where we say we'll only support uh, your program if you agree to do this, 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 and this. We do policy conditionality. And there is an argument that says, actually, it would be better to say to a fragile state, you have your national plan, we will back that national plan, but we want governance conditionality instead of policy conditionality. If the money is wasted, if aid money is stolen, if there's corruption, we will withdraw that support. So we'll back your plan rather than imposing our plan, but the conditionality will be on the governance. That is one of the ideas that we have been looking at. Another issue is just the focus given to um, uh, fragile states, where in the UK we now spend 50% of our aid budget on fragile states, and I think there's a very strong case for others um, taking a similar uh, route. Let me just end with a couple of other points that we've been looking at. One, peacekeeping. Our peacekeepers do an incredible job in some very difficult circumstances, but there is a question mark about how long they can really be effective for. Are we doing enough to back the basic security of these countries and their security organizations rather than just holding it all together with peacekeepers. Second point, and a difficult one, elections. I'm a small d Democrat. I believe in elections. I believe in democracy. But there is an argument about whether with some of these fragile states, particularly conflict-affected ones, do we rush to elections? Do we try and put a sort of Western template of a multi-party election in too quickly? Can this lead, in some cases, to the parties to a conflict, perhaps having an election, the winner of that election, then becoming um, uh, using the political outcome to carry on uh, the, the conflict that they were, they were running in any event, i.e., are we going for one person, one vote, once in too many circumstances? And I think we have to think carefully about that. I think we have to think about the role of international financial uh, institutions. Do they have too much of a one-size-fits-all approach to different countries? Are they giving enough priority to the most fragile states? Are they treating them in a realistic way? Um, I've read about your own plans uh, here in Congress to actually to look at the possibility of a new um, uh, investing institution, US institution. Uh, I think these are brilliant ideas because from what we've seen, there's insufficient support of the private sector. There's insufficient equity finance rather than just loan finance, and there's insufficient focus on fragile states. And all of those things can be helped by well-designed um, institutions. Um, another point we're looking at is resilience. Many of these countries, they make some limited economic progress, but then can be knocked over, that can be knocked back very quickly, or they tend to suffer from um, climactic or other events. Could we do more to prevent rather than respond? Can we do more to help with insurance and other mechanisms to help these countries be um, more resilient? The final point I'd make is um, all of this only makes sense if it's an agenda of things we want to do together rather than just do two fragile states, as I've said. And I think there's a strong case for saying um, 
that in many cases, fragile states, particularly mineral-rich ones, have their money stolen by corrupt politicians and often hidden in Western countries, including my own. And I think the agenda that I did a lot to progress as Prime Minister about making sure we have greater transparency, making sure we have registers of beneficial ownership so we can see who owns what, making sure that tax authorities share tax information so we can stop um, tax avoidance, aggressive tax avoidance and tax evasion. I think that agenda is, should be part of how we help um, fragile states. Final point I'd make is I think this whole argument about fragile states is one that should be linked to the bigger argument about aid. As I said, I'm a supporter of continuing um, aid payments. We've seen a massive reduction in uh, global poverty. We've seen huge advances in vaccinating children, in educating young people, uh, in gender equality uh, and other development goals. We can only continue to win this argument if we do address the problems of the most fragile states where this progress isn't being made. And I think in an age where taxpayers quite rightly are asking about value for money, we need to link arguments to, about aid and about fragile states to our own safety and security here. Uh, and I'm absolutely convinced that aid is not only a moral imperative for us in the West, because we should be helping our neighbours on the other side of the world, as it were, but it's also a security imperative. If we fail, the problems of mass migration, of pandemics, of terrorism, of piracy, of uh, criminal gangs, of people smuggling, of modern slavery, they all come back and visit us at home. And that's why I'm spending quite a lot of my post-prime ministerial life on this very important issue. And with that, thank you very much for letting me come. Thank you. Thank you very much for the testimony. And with that, Senator Menendez. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. A great overview of the, of the issues and the work. I, I want to pick up on uh, two of the elements that you talked about, uh, conditionality governments and the rush to elections, as you uh, described it. So uh, Freedom House's uh, latest annual report uh, said that democracy faced its most serious crisis in decades in 2017 as its basic tenets, including guarantees of free and fair elections, rights of minorities, freedom of the press, the rule of law, came under attack around the world. This marked the 12th consecutive year of decline in global freedom. Uh, and this holds true, for example, in Africa, where leaders have attempted, some successfully, in circumventing obstacles to remaining in power. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, President Kabila's refusal to step down is a good example. So my question is, what is our interrelationship, the intersection between maybe not rushing to elections, but the relationship between democratic black, uh, backsliding and fragility? Is there anything that we should be looking as donors to prevent backsliding? Uh, where, should be we, where, should be, where should we be focusing diplomatic and development efforts to address that problem? Because obviously, uh, while one may not want to rush to elections, by the same token, if there is not a pathway forward towards the very essence of democratic principles, rule of law, and transparency, then all of the donor effort can come to naught. I think this is a really difficult question. And as I said, I'm a supporter of democracy and elections are... We wait for prime ministers from Great Britain to ask those questions, so, you know, <laughs> difficult questions. But I, I would answer it... Look, I think it, we'll make a mistake if we take a fragile state and we say the measure of success is going to be how quickly we write the constitution and get to the election. In some cases, that is effectively what we've done. And I think there are two things we need to think about. One is... 
when we think about democracy, we should be thinking about the building blocks of democracy as well as the act of holding an election. Because we all know that actually, the rule of law, protection of minorities, um, a free press, um, checks and balances, these are actually, in many ways, more important than the actual act of holding the election. So don't judge the success of a country simply by how fast it has an election. The second and I think more profound point is if you're dealing with a a country that's recovering from conflict, if you rush to the election, the danger is that the parties to that conflict just wait for the election, try and win that election, and then complete their victory over their rivals because they've won the election. And so what's required is a longer process of power sharing and trying to deal with the fundamental tensions and problems between the conflicted parties before getting to the election. So I think we bear those two things in mind. It's not saying we should be anti-elections or anti-democracy. I think it's a more hard-headed approach. It's a more realistic approach. It ends with elections and democracy, but it recognizes that you can't go from Afghanistan to Denmark um, you know, at 100 miles an hour. Uh, you've got to try and resolve the fundamental problems in, this in these countries uh, um, and the power sharing that's required to, to bring, bring people together. I respect that answer. I, I, I look at the elections as only one measurement at the end of the day of a totality of what we want to see in a country in terms of rule of law, transparency, respect of minorities, and that may not necessarily all be solidified in an election. But uh, aren't those benchmarks that we should be looking at? Because at some point, don't you have to challenge the fragile state to move in those directions, uh, in, even if it's their plan, as you suggest, let's support their plan, let's say we need good governance in terms of us continuing to provide those resources, but don't we have to call for the elements of what a democracy is about, not just elections, in order to be able to see its people fulfill uh, what we aspire for them? Well, I, we do, but if that's, the, if that's the main thing we measure, we may not really deal with the profound problem. And I would, I would say, let's take two recent, relatively recent examples. Um, Afghanistan and Yemen, um, in both cases, arguably, there wasn't a proper process of power sharing, reconciliation, coming together to form what would be a, an effective provisional government before uh, elections became... Uh, the desired outcome. So in Afghanistan, there's a good argument to say we should, after 2001, have found some way of trying to include, you know, conservative elements of the Pashtuns, elements of Taliban in some sort of national reconciliation. Um, the same applies in Yemen, where the Houthi were effectively left out of, of, of power sharing. Now, that that's always going to be more difficult and take longer, but if you're dealing with a fundamentally fractured country, I would argue it's better to try and get that reconciliation, power-sharing, provisional government together and perhaps try and measure the success of that provisional government. Is it starting to do the things that will stop this state from failing? Is it starting to deliver the public services? Is it starting to generate um, a, a working a private sector economy? And the elections, all the elements of, of Western democracy, which I completely support, that needs to follow, surely, doesn't it, from the process of reconciliation. And if we, if we simply measure speed to election, uh, we're, we're measuring the, the, the wrong thing. And 
I think the reason for making this argument is we've got to recognize what we've been doing in fragile states hasn't been working. Um, there are successful examples of exiting fragility. Uh, Rwanda, I think, would be a good case in point. I mean, you, 1994, hideous genocide, country on its knees, incredible growth and recovery story um, since then. You can go further back in history and find countries that might have had a fragile-looking start, even Singapore, you might say, when it left the Federation of, of, of Malaysia. So there are good examples, but we've got a number of countries which have just been failure after failure after failure. And that's why I think a slightly more patient approach on how you bring together the conflicted parties is, is perhaps a, a one we need to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Young. <coughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Cameron, thank you so much for uh, your service in this capacity. I certainly regard it as a service to the American people as well as uh, so much of the rest of the world. You and I had an opportunity to briefly visit before this uh, hearing. You indicated you visited my home state of Indiana. Uh, one of the things in visiting Greencastle you may not have, have become aware of it, is that Indiana uh, is home to the largest Burmese American community uh, in our country. I have worked with Senator Merkley and others on this committee uh, on, on some legislative work pertaining to the ethnic cleansing by the Burmese government of the Rohingya uh, population. And uh, I'd like uh, your assessment of the situation in Burma and neighboring Bangladesh with respect to the Rohingya if you have a sense of the path forward, um, kindly share that with us. And um, what sort of broader lessons might we take away uh, from that horrible situation? Well, I, I was um, very proud to be the first British Prime Minister, I think in a long time, who went to Burma and um, met with Aung San Suu Kyi when she was still um, effectively in her home, but was able to travel a bit more freely. And things were beginning to open up. Um, and you know, I think we've all got to admit, those of us who've been huge supporters of, of hers and supporters of the democratization process in Burma, um, that what's happened with respect to the Rohingya is appalling and that it's been very disappointing, the response of you know, people who aspire to be Democrats and believe in democratic societies have, have, have tolerated and allowed this to happen. But I think if we take it back to the bigger question of how we deal with fragile states. There's an element of what I'm saying here, I think, which is that we all wanted Burma to move to democracy, and it's good that it's heading in that direction. We all wanted uh, someone who had stood up for democracy to have their chance to stand and um, lead their country, and, and that's happening. But there was a bigger question we needed to ask at the same time, which is how are you going to resolve the tensions in this country and the ethnic differences, how are you going to have a government that represents all of your people, not just some of your people? And perhaps we were insufficiently robust in asking those questions because there, there were problems with the different ethnicities in Burma, uh, including the Rohingya, and what's become apparent is that that wasn't high enough, nearly high enough up um, Aung San Suu Kyi's list of priorities, how to bring the country together and how to have a government that could represent all of her people. And I think that goes to my point, a passionate believer in democracy and in elections. We were very focused on getting to those things in Burma. Were we all sufficiently focused on how to make sure it was a Burma for everybody? Perhaps not. Well, thank you. We'll continue to, uh, I know, collectively work on uh, that situation, do whatever we can to be helpful uh, to 
the people of Burma, uh, the Rohingya uh, population most especially. Um, I'd like to turn now to the importance of effectively crowding in, as it were, private investment with respect to our development activities. Uh, last year, I, I convened a subcommittee hearing on global philanthropy and remittances. Uh, as it pertains to international development. And some of the takeaways from that hearing uh, were that uh, private sector investment of uh, various forms increasingly, uh, it's, it's so much greater than uh, we see official development assistance from uh, whether it's multilateral institutions or uh, from uh, in a bilateral way from governments. According to a 2016 report, this comes from the Indiana University uh, Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, 84% of all donors' total economic engagement with the developing world is through private financial flows. Uh, of course, we know that uh, official government assistance continues to play a catalyzing role, and uh, it's, it's essential to bring in that, that private investment. But one of the qu questions you ask in your testimony is, quote, how do we help to activate the private sector in the most fragile countries, creating jobs, growth, and prosperity for everyone to share in? I believe that is the right question, and I'd like to know what your answer is to it. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, on your point on remittances, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, remittances dwarf overseas aid figures, um, and they should be encouraged. I mean, the, the money flowing back into very broken countries like Somalia, uh, is hugely important in the economy of that country. We should ask ourselves, what can we do to help that happen? Um, and uh, there is a danger that some of these remittances get caught up in very appropriate and well-meaning legislation about money laundering and what have you. We, we do need to make sure we're not holding back uh, remittances. We should also you know, encourage um, the, the use of modern digital technology to transfer money. Um, because there are lots of ways you can save money by doing these things um, digitally while guarding against um, uh, the dangers that, that Bitcoin and others uh, uh, mechanisms have. Um, on your question about the private sector, I mean, I think one of the things we're finding is just that, it, I mean, it's the statement of the obvious, but in many of these countries, there just isn't a functioning um, or there's a very small functioning private sector. And there are problems of security that lie behind that. But I would, I would highlight two other things that we need to think about very seriously. One is that, as I've said, a feature of all these fragile states is governments that lack even the basic capacity to get things done. And there is an argument that says, as they start to build that capacity, one of the most important bits of capacity is the bit of government that relates to the private sector and business, the bit of government that relates to licensing and provision of services and all the rest of it. And we need to think about how to supercharge that, how to, how to make that happen more quickly. Uh, a second thing is we always focus on infrastructure. How can businesses get their goods to market? How can they get their goods to port? Are we building, uh, helping building the correct road and rail and port infrastructure? I think we probably underestimated the importance of legal infrastructure, property rights. Uh, there are plenty of places in Africa you go to where you see signs saying this house is not for sale. And the reason is that you get, is that because there aren't clear property rights, there isn't a clear property register, people often find that what they thought was theirs is being sold by some crook uh, without them uh, knowing. So I think that is, is very important. Final point I'd make, and I referred to it in my introduction, is the, the big lending institutions um, do a great job at helping promote development in the poorest parts of the world, 
But there is a question mark in our minds writing this report. One, are they sufficiently focused on the most fragile states? Um, because it's, if you apply lots of benchmark tests, economic return, social return, environmental return, pretty soon you'll find that you'll only back the projects in the slightly safer countries, which would probably get the private sector backing anyway. We actually need to find ways of really focusing them onto the most difficult countries and the most difficult projects, because that's where we want them to, uh, to make a difference. Uh, in doing so, I mean, this, this will seem as, as um, British... Um, preferring our own institutions. But there, the one institution, what was the Commonwealth Development Corporation, the CDC, has totally changed from being in one that invested into other funds, into direct investment into specific projects. And it targets fragile states. So it, it has a whole set of targets to make sure it is putting the money into the most difficult and dangerous places. And I think that is, is very helpful. And as I said, I think you, in the Senate you're looking at a, a potential... Uh, institution that could that could do this, and I think that we'll, that, that would be a very positive development. Thank you for your thoughtful and fulsome response. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for being here. Um, one of the one of the things you don't talk about in your remarks that I think is very important as we think about fragile states and how we can better support them is the importance of empowering women empowering women economically, improving their access to education, um, making sure that they participate in any conflict negotiations. Data shows that that does make a difference. You pointed out how well R Rwanda has done since their um, civil war. And in, in fact, one of the reasons that they've been as successful as they have, I would argue, is because women have played um, an equal role in that society as it's been rebuilt. So can you talk about what more you would like to see um, yeah. the United States and the West do in terms of supporting women in fragile well, countries? Um, well, I think it's absolutely crucial. And the Sustainable Development Goals, which I, I played some role in the committee that Ban Ki-moon set up, uh, which I co-chaired with the president of Indonesia and the president of Liberia, um, I thought we gave a much greater priority to gender equality and the whole gender SDG, I think, is much stronger than what was uh, there previously. And I think it's absolutely crucial. The only reason it's not in the, the memo I set out is we're really looking at what are the things we need to do differently in fragile states as compared to other poor countries. The, we need to apply um, the, the views that I'm sure you and I would share about the importance of gender equality and what a massive driver of development it can be, uh, we need to apply that everywhere, fragile states included. I think what my memo is concentrating on, what are the things we need to do differently in these states and what is actually failing? But um, in terms of uh, the support that Britain or America gives uh, in terms of aid, I think gender should be an absolutely crucial part of it. And my plea would be, which I make back at home, that we stick with the 0.7 uh, that we have um, historically delivered, and we go on doing that. And my plea here, of course, it's not, not for me to tell you what to do, um, but to keep going with uh, US aid programs, which have done an enormous amount for, for gender equality. It, it is often the one thing that can absolutely flip the growth rate and progress of, of a particular country. And those countries that are disadvantaging women, they, see, they can see that they are falling behind. And, you know, even in... Saudi Arabia, they are beginning to realize that um, 
disadvantaging um, half of the talent of the country, or as my wife would say, considerably more than the half of the talent of the country, is not, in, is not a sensible approach. Well, I would urge you to add that to your list, even though you're making that distinction, I think, for people who, who are just looking at this, it's an important reminder about sure. how important that is. As you look at countries or regions where you're particularly concerned about them deteriorating further or where you think intervention um, in a different way might um, change the outcome. Are there particular countries or regions where you would urge us to, to look um, especially hard at what we're doing? Well, I, I, would, um, uh, I would say, first of all, that I think it is worth differentiating between um, levels of extreme poverty that we want to tackle according to the SDGs. It's worth differentiating between that and between fragile states. And I think it is worth having a focus on fragile states because I think when we look at um, the world's poorest, uh, we can see that India and China, still home to a huge percentage of the world's poorest, are actually lifting people out of poverty at quite a rate. Um, and soon we're going to get to a position where 50% of the world's poorest, those living on less than $2 a day, 50% of them will be in fragile states. So I think the focus should be on the fragile states. As I said, Britain now puts 50% of our bilateral aid programs into fragile states, and I hope other countries will look at doing the, the same thing. Um, in terms of geographically where they are, many of the most fragile states would be in Africa, the DRC, Burundi, Liberia. You know, there are lots of countries that have you know, suffered from conflict, corruption, weak governance, weak capacity. Uh, lack of resilience, all of those characteristics. But you can also find them elsewhere. In every continent, there are fragile states. I think one of the most remarkable things is um, uh, that you often find countries next door to each other with quite similar characteristics, but one is a success and the other is not. Um, Botswana, massive success story, middle-income country. Neighbouring Zimbabwe, disaster. Um, Colombia, coming out of conflict, economically successful. Venezuela, we all, we all know what's, you know. So what's interesting is it is about, what's the difference between these countries? It's not geography, it's not climate, it's not ethnicity, it is actually governance, it is leadership, it's the decisions they've made, the choices they've taken, and I think that should reinforce our view that you can do something about fragility, you have to focus on governance, um, as you start focusing on governance, you get into some very difficult questions about how you help because you can't have some sort of neo-imperial program. As I've said, you've got to try and back their programs rather than imposing your own agenda. Um, but if you can help with those modest improvements, governance can, can make a difference. Well, and I know I'm out of time, but I, I think it's important to reinforce what you said. It's not just about governance. It's also about leadership and who the leaders are. So you can have a great government yeah. structure, but if you don't have a leader who um, helps lead the country in the right direction, that governance structure doesn't account for yeah. um, what we would all like to see. I think there's something on that which we'd, we'd, we'd appreciate, you know, the Commission would really appreciate your views, which is, I think if you look back at countries that have made advances out of fragility, it's often because there's been a particular moment. It might be a new president elected, it might be the end of a war. In the case of Rwanda, it was a national event so horrific that it, you know, it gave a, a leader a chance to take the country in a different direction. 
And I think that might have an implication for how we decide to spend money. Because if what we do is just have continued programmes for countries that sometimes fail year after year after year, we just keep going, maybe that's not a good use of our money. Maybe better if actually we said, hold on, here is a country that has got a genuine opportunity of change because of one of these events, and let's actually really put more resources and more effort into to that. Um, and so we might want to think about how we allot money, how we prioritise. Mm. Um, and there may be some cases where the governance in a particular country is so bad that we simply say, well, we're not going to help because we cannot have the guarantees that this money is not going to be wasted, that the corruption doesn't continue, because you know it's not fair on our taxpayers to say we're going to go on supporting a country where uh, they're not even achieving the basic norms of, of governance and audit to make sure this money isn't stolen. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Cameron, thank you for being here and thank you for what you're doing. Um, I was just thinking the Chairman and I, Chairman Corker and I, went to uh, uh, the Sudan and to uh, President Gagami's uh, country that you've referred to right. quite frequently today. And I think both those are primary examples of the two ways in which a fragile state can exit or stay. Yeah. In the Sudan, al-Bashir's goal to keep power in the sand was to keep it a fragile state. And because of that fragility, the people were kind of, it's kind of like the, what's happened under, under the Dutch disease, where a lot of the rich countries with natural resources, the leadership keeps the money, doesn't use it to invest in the people, and so they don't have to build their way out of the uh, in poverty that they have. And then you take uh, the, the uh, opposite example, I mean, Rwanda is the, is the example where Kagame came in and ended a horrible genocide with, between the Hutu and the Tutsis. And through economic empowerment and team building, really, which was his leadership, they exited a, a mass slaughter of each other. <coughs> the National Basket Company of Rwanda is a tin hut uh, where every morning Tutu and Tutsi women go to the hut and they divide up, and one Hutu and one Tutsi gets in each square on the floor that's drawn out in chalk, and they make two baskets a week. And they sell those baskets to Bloomingdale's in New York, and they split, get the, a commission on the sales of those baskets. Remember, Bob, when we went mm -hmm. through there and saw that? Sure. And what they did, they got the Hutus and the Tutsis making baskets together instead of cutting each other's heads off. Yep. They created economic empowerment to the women, and Senator Shaheen's point, and they built their way into what's a right successful country in Africa. Now, I know Kagame, there, there are some issues maybe, but you got to give him credit. I mean, uh, I saw Bob Corker dig a tree out of the middle of a path in a little village we were in on Umagande Sunday. Remember that, Bob? Mm -hmm. And he had a strong guy like Bob and a weakling like me out there digging a tree up <laughs> in the middle of an African village, and they were watching and clapping, and we were digging. But that was leadership, and, and they did those things to improve their infrastructure. So I think, I think Rwanda is a perfect example of how you can exit fr fragility and go into prosperity or on your way to prosperity through economic empowerment and through governance and through leadership. Might not be our type of governance or our type of leadership, but, but just comparing that to al-Bashir, al-Bashir, the people in Sudan, appear to me to be a captive of a man whose dream is to keep them captive in the poverty of fragility rather than the opportunity of capitalism. I, I would agree with a lot of what you said, sir. I think Rwanda is an example of um, effective leadership. There's no doubt that he, he has been effective at delivering economic development. But I think it also goes to this point I'm making about it was a Rwandan national program. You know, we didn't come in and impose our ideas and objectives. It was their plan and we backed their plan. 
and I was talking to President Kagame about this the other day, and it, he said, I'm very happy for, for, for you to say, if, if you find any of this money wasted, if you find the budget support you've given goes on, you know, Minister's Mercedes or is stolen, then take the money away. So governance conditionality. But it's got to be our plan, because you've got to allow... In the end, these countries only escape fragility if their institutions grow in both their capacity to get things done, but also their legitimacy. They're seen as legitimate by the people. So I think it is a good example. I think that also they focused on some pretty important economic things. The time it takes to get goods from Rwanda to the port in Mombasa, it used to take, I think, three weeks, and they've got that down to a number of days, and that was just because they totally <coughs> focused on what you need to get a private sector economy going. I think South Sudan is, is a, a, a very good example of what goes wrong. When the country was divided, Sudan and South Sudan, I don't think the international community was sufficiently focused on the reconciliation that needed to take place within South Sudan. Uh, the country started up and elections and all the rest of it, but without a proper reconciliation between the tribes in South Sudan um, uh, in terms of how power was going to be shared and how checks and balances would be put in place. But it is possibly an example of where the international community could be tougher uh, in terms of conditionality because the economy is based on a mixture of oil and aid, and actually those are two things over which the international community could exercise um, some leverage in order to try and ensure that there is a proper way of sharing power in that country rather than just carving it up. Well, thank you very much for your leadership because helping these states to work their way out of and establish the goals and the leadership within their state to work their way out of fragility into prosperity is something all of us could do to help. It would reduce our need to have foreign aid or assistance programs, but it would improve the lives of those people a hundred times over. So sure. thank you for your leadership. Thank you. Senator, Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Prime Minister, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And uh, I agree with your statements. It's about basic government capacity is the, is the key to dealing with the fragile states. And we can't solve that problem by going around the governments. It may provide humanitarian assistance to the people that are suffering, but it's not going to deal with the stability of fragile states. And we do need to have government accountability, and that's why conditionality of aid affecting government change is the way I think we need to go. I want to um, talk a little bit about what I think is one of the major goals, and that is to deal with the corruption that we see in fragile regimes. We have a lot of very, very poor countries where their leaders are doing extremely well uh, because of corruption. Uh, you mentioned uh, transparency. One of the areas that we've been trying to work with here in Congress is transparency in the extractive industries because a lot of the fragile states have mineral wealth, but the mineral wealth is going to for corruption rather than to the people itself. So the United Nations took a major step forward in the Sustainable Development Goal number 16, which for the first time dealt with governance as part of uh, our major objectives. The first round, we had pretty good success under the Millennium Development Goals. So now under the Sustainable Development Goals, how can we coordinate an international effort? I understand the United States needs to take a lead and, and UK take a lead, but how can we really mobilize the international effort to focus on accomplishing Goal 16, which would help us with governance in fragile states so that we can have accountability and we can do something on a more permanent basis? 
Um, well, I'm so glad you mentioned Goal 16 because when, we, um, when I chaired that committee with uh, the other leaders, it was one of the things I was determined to do was to get a goal on governance and corruption and rule of law and access to justice into uh, whatever the world eventually agreed to. And it was, you know, with, with, with a committee that we had that included countries of all different shapes and sizes and political outlooks, if I can put it that way, it was, it was something to, to get that in there. And it was there not just because of uh, my prejudices, but um, when we actually went out and asked people, what is it you most want from these goals? Of course, number one was tackling poverty, but the second thing was access to justice. Um, and that was the cry from the poorest people in the poorest countries in the world. I think the answer to your question, sir, is that we have to lead by example, because there are so many cases of money stolen from poor countries and hidden in rich ones that, of course, we want those countries to be less corrupt. We want those leaders to be less corrupt. We want them to have laws in place. We want them to have courts that work. We want people to go to prison when they steal money and all the rest of it. But we won't be able to have that leverage unless we sort our own act out. And that's why when I chaired the G8, I put this issue of registers of beneficial ownership. We need to have in all of our countries uh, a register so you can see who owns what. Preferably, as in we're doing in Britain, we're having an open one so it can be searched by members of the public, NGOs and others. But I think a minimum standard is that everyone should have one of these registers so that when you're looking for stolen assets, you can look and you can find them wherever they are. I would combine that with this crucial thing about sharing tax information between countries, including between poor countries and rich countries. And that might mean we have to use some of our aid money to help these countries build their own tax uh, capacity and tax inspection. Um, because if we do these things, there's a chance that we can then have a far bigger conversation about how we tackle corruption. Because we can say, look, we're sorting our own situation out. So you can, if the money's been hidden in Delaware or in London or in Paris, you can, you can come and find it. I think the other piece that goes with that is returning stolen assets. We've got to make that faster. As you often find, you know, people, whether it's Mubarak or um, others, vast larcenery. You know, they're not just stealing small amounts of money. It is billions. It would actually make a material difference if you divided it up and gave it back to the people that um, they took it from. And we're too slow at that. So I think there's a whole set of things. And this makes this more of a global effort rather than the rich world looking at some of the poorest countries in the world and saying, we've got some ideas to help you do better. If it's a global effort because we're doing our bit, I think that would hugely help. And add, extractives is a very big part of it. And let me just add one thing this committee is doing. We, we're, we've passed legislation, hasn't been taken off on the floor yet, that would use the example of trafficking in persons report for corruption so that we can start best practices and rate countries, but then use that as a guideline to our development assistance to try to build capacity to deal with corruption in countries. Right. Trafficking has now been taken on globally to yep. fight that. We've got to take corruption on globally. I completely agree. Um, I chaired in London one of the, I think it was the first purely anti-corruption conference, um, and uh, you know, set out a whole roadmap of things that, that countries needed to do. And we need to have, and I hope Congress can maybe help with that, to keep up the momentum. Because uh, there's a whole bunch of things that countries can do about registers of ownership, about sharing of tax information, about returning assets, uh, about making sure that people who are corrupt can't serve in public office, a whole bunch of stuff that we can encourage countries to do. And I think there's one last thing on, on extractive industries. Um, 
because that can sometimes feel like a, a very complicated and sort of long and lonely battle. Um, but the truth is the world's come a huge long way over 20, 30 years. And what was a very unequal struggle between big oil companies dealing with uh, governments that were A, weak and B, corrupt. We're living in a very different world now where there's far more understanding about what fair deals are and what, what deals these companies should uh, come to. And so while it can seem quite boring and technical and hard work, the work of organizations like uh, EITI is absolutely crucial. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. When you talk about weak and corrupt countries and, and how we can get away from this, it does seem information is helpful uh, at all levels. If you think about what cell phones have done and electricity to allow people who are just growing crops to not just be dependent on knowing the price from the guy that comes up with the truck and offers them only so much money, uh, they now know how much what price to ask for. Uh, I mean, this has helped in terms of medicine, in terms of all the technology. You need to make sure those people have you know, access to the cell phones, which they certainly do, but then the electricity to power them. It seemed with the last couple of trips I was in in Africa, it just seemed that electricity was a big issue. And when you talk about governance in terms of not imposing our own views, but allowing people to, to, to govern, uh, sometimes I see the United States trying to make decisions about, well, we'll only allow you to subsidize this kind of power, but not that kind of power because we're looking at environmental purity or what happens to be you know, the, the, a global overview as opposed to what's better to put electricity into the hands of the people right there. And you see that affecting childbirth, death during childbirth without electricity you, uh, in terms of just being able to refrigerate food, those things related to our own views versus what, what's best for the people on the ground to give them the information to then get out of the situation. Well, I think you're, you're right, sir. There's an enormous opportunity to use technology to do development better. Uh, and I'd just give a couple of examples. One is, which I think you were hinting at, is transparency. If it's clear how much money USAID is spending in Kenya or Tanzania and how much money is going to schools, you should be able to publish that money People should be able to follow whether the money's got to their school, whether the school's been built, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is now, you can publish it. People should be able to look at it on their cell phones. And I think we should try and make sure that as we uh, work with our development institutions, our DFID, your USAID, and others, that they should be encouraged to do more that is transparent and also work with um, what I would call the sort of dev tech sector, you know, the whole bunch of new businesses in development that are trying to do things differently. But I think you're, the, 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 the most important point you made is when it comes to electricity and energy, which is many of these fragile states are woefully provided for in these areas, the temptation in the past has been to do the big project, uh, vast finance, big loan, government contract, often a lot of corruption involved in it, big national grid being built, big power stations being built um, that either don't work, don't happen, and masses of siphoning off of corrupt money. Now it is possible to use small solar installations that can provide solutions at a much lower cost and at a more local level. Um, it's more difficult for the corrupt to get their hands on those things. And so we should be looking at those. And that goes to the point I was making about working with the small and medium-sized enterprises, working with the private sector, trying to look at equity as well as just loans, and recognizing some of these things can be done at small scale rather than very big scale. So just your point, sir. So 
you know, I go back and forth between how do we address the cause of the fragility and not just the, the symptoms of the fragility. And as I just asked that question, I said, am I really talking about the cause or the symptoms and how do we? Well, I think one of the issues is that um, the people who've been addressing this um, and trying to address this, who've worked valiantly at it, I think there's been this sort of search for the single cause of fragility. Um, and I, I think the trouble is that we're not going to find it. They're all interrelated. You have a, a, a lack of security, and so you don't have a proper market economy. You don't have a proper market economy, so you don't have any tax revenue, so you don't have a capable government. You've got an incapable government, so you've got conflict going on. Because you've got conflict going on, the institutions of your government aren't legitimate for half the country. It's all these things are into Everything causes everything else. Um, so I think the search for the one cause is probably not a good use of, of, of our time. I think what we should be searching for is the, the many steps you can take as a fragile country and as an international community trying to support that country that can slowly make a difference and build your way steadily out of, out of fragility. Because yeah, it's if you know if you travel through Africa, I've done with the one organization, yep. and they say, well, you know, okay, we're going to we're going to fund one project. What is it? Is it the road? Is it the electricity? To try to help people focus on what is the one thing that, that made me not be able to address all of these that you just pointed to. But so it, just, the best thing to do is to ask the people of that country and the government of that country what is your priority. Now, of course, if they say, well, the priority is, you know training jihadists, well, you're not going to support that. But, I mean, if it may turn out that the priority they want is not actually the priority we might want. There was a classic example in South Sudan where one particular donor said, we're not going to support this country until they put in place a, um, a specific goal on climate change. Well, this is just asking a country that is, you know, at a fairly basic level of development to start designing programs that it wasn't ready to do. So the most important thing, that it is their plan that you're backing, and it's something that over time will build the legitimacy of, of, uh, of that, uh, that, that country and that government. Because in the end, we don't want to be giving these countries aid forever. They don't want to be receiving aid forever. Mm -hmm. and, and in the end, the answer is effective governments that can, can sort these problems themselves. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cranford. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez. Thank you, Prime Minister. It is Wonderful uh, to have this chance to hear from you some uh, well-thought-out, deep, uh, insightful commentary on the significance of fragile states, on the ways that we can partner uh, to um, focus our development investments and efforts and financing uh, work in ways that really could cumulatively have a significant impact on um, security and stability. Um, let me talk first, if I could, about a bipartisan bill that um, Chairman Corker and I have introduced and that has the support of eight members of this committee on modernizing our development finance tools. Yeah. I think, and I quote, you called the ideas in that brilliant. I can die and go to heaven now. Um, it, um, it would provide a whole suite of new tools uh, to what is currently known as OPIC. Uh, it's called the Build Act, and it would allow for investment yeah. in equities and local currencies and um, a number of other things. I'd be interested in, um, given the leadership that um, you've shown in development finance and the ways you've referenced its significance, how do you think we might um, focus on or prioritize investing in fragile environments? Um, do you have any recommendations um, that would focus on development finance institutions and how we get them uh, to target better development outcomes? Um, and how would you see this uh, revised or strengthened uh, U.S. development finance uh, entity partnering better 
uh, with uh, allies, uh, particularly in Western Europe, particularly that share the same priorities and worldview? I, mean, I think I'm right in saying that the, the point about OPIC is that it can do loans, but it can't do equity investment, and that's part of your that's plan correct. is this, this would modernization. Allow yeah. um, but to answer your, your questions as directly as I can, I mean, how to focus on fragile states, I mean, I think it's in how you set it up and how you incentivize and how you set out its plan. What we did with the Commonwealth Development Corporation, now CDC, was literally give it a set of um, targets um, that deliberately focused on the most fragile states. And so that is how they define their success. If you, you know, define the success purely by returns, then you're always going to be motivated to find the least fragile of the states you've been asked to invest in. And also you'll tend to go to the bigger ones. You know, it's, it's easier to find, um, given it's going to take a lot of management time and all the rest of it, a project in Nigeria is always going to be more attractive than a project in Burundi. But that's why no one is investing in Burundi. So, I mean, I, I think how to focus on fragile states is simple. It's just to focus on. I think in some cases you may want to look at altering the target returns um, and really significantly lowering them. Some of these countries are so short of basic investment, particularly in legal and physical infrastructure, that uh, even if you, know, if you compare it with aid, once you've spent an aid dollar, it's gone. With these equity investments, even if you don't lose money, um, you're actually helping build capacity that is going to make a future a difference to the future of this country. So I think focus on them. Look at the uh, the the, way, the returns. Um, in terms of the outcomes, you focus on again. I think we've got to think about how we work with the countries. I haven't quite worked out how to do this yet. But ideally, you know, if you want if we want to make these countries stronger for the future and their institutions more legitimate, then the very best thing would be if the development financial institutions were helping them to set up um, funds that were investing in small and medium-sized enterprises that would make a real difference in those countries. Because if it's all seen as something being done to these countries, it doesn't really... It might help with some of the infrastructure, but it doesn't help with the longer-term problem, which is uh, the legitimacy and the capacity of their institutions. So I think that's worth thinking about. I think the SME sector, often in these countries, when you look at them, what's really missing is what we have in your country or mine, vast businesses ranging from two employees to 200. They've got lots of one or man or woman shows, and they've got one or two big businesses and nothing in between. Um, how to partner? Um, I think part of it is, is getting these institutions together um, to try and make sure that they have some common agendas. Uh, and I think as you look to set up uh, your new DFI. Um, I've said it before, but I, I do think CDC has got a lot of um, is, is really worth having a good look at, particularly the way they've changed over the last five or six years. Well, I do thank you for that answer. I do think uh, our Millennium Challenge Corporation has moved um, quite a ways for our overall yep. development approach in the direction of partnering with a country, responding to its development priorities, having accountability uh, mechanisms. One thing we've tried to work on here is to give our MCC the authority to do regional compacts rather than just bilateral. Do you think in combating uh, fragile states, you gave the example of Burundi, some that are so small it's difficult to prioritize them. Should we be looking at fragility on a regional basis as well as bilateral? Um, I, I think 
but there are regional organizations that you can work with and that have a good perspective. But at the end of the day, um, I think we do need to work with the countries. Uh, you know, I think sometimes the development world is, is um, a bit dismissive of the rights of nation states. Um, and in the end, you know, it, it, it wasn't the regional organization that helped sort out Rwanda. It was the government of Rwanda with the assistance of generous aid donors that wanted to back uh, a leadership that had a plan for its country. And I, that, that, I think, is, is the best answer. I think often you'll find areas where there's a series of fragile countries, in the Sahel, for instance, being the classic example. And so initiatives are put together to help all of these countries. And I, that's all to the good. There's so many interconnections. But at the end of the day, you know, we need the government of Mali to be more capable and more legitimate. We need the government of Niger to be more capable and legitimate. These countries aren't going to go away. You can't sort of pretend you can go around them. And I think the thrust of what we've been looking at is how to, um, how, how to work with these countries rather than go, go around them. And in doing so, there's one, one other point I, we haven't really talked about, which is this, I, of course you've got to help build institutions. They need tax collecting authorities, they need licensing departments, they need education departments. Um, but the truth is that you, you can't just build these things without at the same time trying to help that country deliver an, a, a narrative about what it's trying to do, about what its plan is, about what it's for, about what its goals are. And I think it's quite interesting when you look at how different states have got out of fragility, those ones that have had a sort of national story about what they're trying to achieve have always done better than the ones who've tried to carve up um, the assets of the country between different tribes trying to keep them happy. Mm -hmm. So if you look, for instance, at what Suretsi Karma did in Botswana mm -hmm. or to an extent what was done in Tanzania, there was a real attempt to try and build some national identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that can help hugely with... Uh, trying to make these countries have a successful future. So regional organisations, yes, you can work with them, but if it's a matter, if you're trying to go around the country, uh, I, I don't think it'll work. Um, thank you. Let me just close by uh, also offering my condolences on uh, the attack in Salisbury um, and my thanks to you for being clear-eyed about the Russian threat. Uh, I do think we have important work to do uh, as close allies. Um, and if we have a moment afterwards, I'd love to talk to you more about the Sahel. Well, can I just say I'm very grateful um, for you saying that. Uh, in, in Britain, we are absolutely united in seeing what has happened as completely horrific, um, unjustified, unjustifiable. I think the Prime Minister's response has been very firm, very strong, and quite rightly so. And, you know, the special relationship, the partnership between our countries is so important to us, and knowing that uh, here in the United States you are with us uh, in facing down these threats is, is incredibly important. And uh, all I would say is that, um, you know, the, the, it's so important that a clear message is sent by allies about the unacceptability of this behaviour and that real consequences will follow. And uh, all the experience I had over six years as Prime Minister is there are some countries and some leaders who will only understand a very firm response. And a weak response, uh, they will simply uh, do again what they've done before. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Prime Minister. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We uh, very much appreciate you sharing your, your world experiences and the work you've done on fragile states with us today. It's been a great hearing. Um, obviously, uh, we honor your service to the United Kingdom and your great friendship to us. 
We appreciate you taking the time to be here. Uh, the way our committee hearings work, um, we allow written questions after the fact, and we're going to have those until the close of business Friday, and to the extent you can. I know you're very busy traveling the world and doing what you're doing, but to the extent you can answer those, we'd, we'd appreciate it. Again, thank you for your great friendship, your outstanding service. Uh, well, my pleasure. Thank you. Can I also say that you know we have not finished our report. We're still thinking about it, and if there are perspectives and ideas that you have, um, perhaps particularly on this um, uh, development finance institution, uh, we're very keen that this report really generates a change in how we deal with fragile states, and so we'd welcome your perspectives. Well, I'm sure the brilliant senator would like for you to, to include that in your report. So. I'll do my best. All right. With that, we're adjourned. Thank, Thank you so you. much.